0: From the Pea picking Studios of Rodale Institute Radio and Television at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA, it is time for another educational hour of chemical-free horticultural hijinks. You bet your garden. Do you need to start pea and bean seeds indoors for the coming season? I'm your host, Mike McGrath, and on today's show, we'll reveal how to successfully harvest a bumper crop of peas and beans. Plus, longtime seed slinger Renee Shepard joins us to talk about seed sowing success. And of course, your phone call questions, comment tips, strict suggestions, and seriously sanguine solicitations. So keep your eyes and or ears right here at Cats and Kittens, because it's all coming up faster than you eating your first peas before we exit the merry month of May. Right after this.
1: Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com.
0: Welcome to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio and Television at Lehigh Valley Public Media, always in Bethlehem. P-A-I. I am your host, Mike McGrath, and we got one of them jam-packed shows for you today, cats and kittens. In the question of the week, we're going to talk about when and how to plant peas and beans. Although they're closely related, there are things about them that couldn't be more different. We're also going to talk to one of my favorite people in the business, Renee Shepard of Renee's Garden about her very high quality line of vegetable and flower seeds and her favorites. And we always get good tips from Renee. So we would better jump right into your fabulous phone calls at 833-727-9588. Dan, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Well, thanks. Uh, really great to talk to you, Mike. Really good to talk to you, Dan. How you doing?
2: I'm doing fine. I'm uh, intrigued where I'm at now and uh, pumped up to try to talk to you. I'm going to use you as a uh, part of my due diligence here with some questions.
0: Okay. <laughs> All right. And where is your due diligence being done?
2: Well, it's being done in a little bump in the road in South Middle Tennessee in a small farm. On the Buffalo River, and it's uh, that's a, it's north of uh, Lawrenceburg, Tennessee. But to, to give you a, a better perspective, it's about 70 miles
0: southwest of Nashville. Okay. Did you get flooded? No. You didn't get the flood, even though you're near a river, huh?
2: Yep. Uh, no, no problem. We're, our house and barn and everything is is. Uh, probably about a, on the property about a half a mile maybe from the river and mm-hmm. we're up about a 100 feet higher than the uh, the river
0: level so now that it, can be worth a million bucks having it is, some elevation it is, it yeah it definitely
2: is yeah you wouldn't want to be on the wrong side of of any water that's no. for sure
0: so what can we do you for
2: well i ran into something you know I've been gardening for probably oh i don't know 45 years or so uh, making mistakes in at least five different states, and mm-hmm. six if you if you count the uh, state of confusion.
0: It's the only way men learn, Dan.
2: Oh I, yeah, yeah, I'll tell you. And even there, you got to relearn it. But <laughs> uh, the the whole thing with uh, with this is, I ran into something the first time that I've ever ever seen it, and I can't believe that that's the first I've ever heard of it. I wanted to know if you had any experience with chitosan.
0: Yes, I'm familiar with chitin. Okay. The reason I, I looked at it was
2: uh, I was reading a book by uh, Harold McGee. It was called Nosedive. It's a new one. It's a field guide to the world smells. Hey. And, he's, and, and the reason why it's so interesting is uh, he's got the chemistry down on all kinds of stuff through And I found out that he was a consultant and a mentor for a course at Harvard where it's a cross between culinary arts and physics, a joint program that's been going on for 10 years. Sure, yeah, so, absolutely. anyway, I looked at it and p- pulled up the book. I bought the book and read the book. And I ran across just a real brief little p- uh, couple paragraphs in there that was talking about using a, uh, a, a biostimulant and an elicitor to prime the immune system of plants to basically uh, Kick into defensive mechanisms and uh, produce a whole lot of green leaf volatiles and a whole series of like changing their, their their basal metabolism to the point that they can go ahead and and produce a lot of defensive compounds that will both kill off or uh, stave off uh, attack from insects or fun- fungus and so forth. Well, well, well okay, let, let me let me, then, let
0: me say that already we have research. Um, that was conducted back in the 90s that showed mixing chitin-rich material like crab shells and shrimp shells into working compost, um, created finished compost that allowed plants not only to resist non-beneficial nematodes, the root-knot nematodes Mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. plague gardeners down south and out west, right but if this compost was applied for a couple years in a row it would actually eradicate the root knot nematodes they wouldn't come near the soil so that and you realize that maybe that that's a godsend for people who have these creatures that, you know, literally tie up the root systems and don't allow the plants to absorb nutrients anymore.
2: Sure, sure. Well, this is absolutely supporting. I I did a deep dive down the rabbit hole.
0: Maybe you've heard me mention on the air uh, a compost company. The reason I mention them is I see their products all over the country called Coast of Maine, and they make really premium compost, and one of their compost is a lobster compost. They take all the the shellings um, from a factory that processes uh, lobsters, and they mix it in with their working compost. And to me, that's a dream if you've got root-knot nematodes.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the, uh, one of the things that I found that I, I found very interesting is that uh, the, I found a company that actually does the, the extraction and, and makes essentially the, like, the kind of, cyan, the kind of acetate, in other words, uh, extracts that between 1% and 3% solutions. Mm-hmm. And the, the nice part about that is they were actually paying for the the uh, fishery waste from far, fisher, fishermen who mm-hmm. were, uh, you know, uh, basically having to get rid of the waste anyway and give them a little bit more of a uh, an income stream you know, while at the same time recycling that waste and turning it into something that is actually uh, soluble, water-soluble. Mm-hmm. And they're talking about low concentrations triggering this same effect without having issues. And I, I just dug through a whole, I must have looked at 50 to 100 research papers from around the world so far, getting just getting started. And, you know, my whole background was trying to find uh the, basically, like process hazard review and chemical safety and that sort of thing, and I, I'm a, a certified skeptic, you know, so I mean, uh, <laughs> You I got mean, the paper to,
0: on the wall and everything, uh, exactly. right? Exactly, and I mean, I... And I all just, it says is, I don't believe what you're telling me.
2: Right, and what I'm getting to now, after a, a fair amount of digging and, uh, you know, skepticism, is that, uh, this is looking more and more like a win-win you know situation uh... and and so i mainly wanted to know if you also if you ever used any of of it directly or something like the kind of acetate solutions that i trigger don't, these.
0: i don't go for these concentrated things i i'm even a skeptic about um, some vitamins. Oh, no,
2: me me too. I'm one of
0: these people. And, you know, the true experts that I've met over the decades I've been in this business always reinforce you're going to get better results from the bulk natural material. And for me, I have been in a pinch. Uh, Sometimes I've been, uh, you know, down in Florida or up in like, Colorado and I've had to put on a demonstration of like container gardening and I would go and I would you know get some good potting soil and if I could find the coast of Maine uh lobster compost because I thought it was also interesting and it would it would get people's attention and I have used it at home uh Mm -hmm. in my own garden you know just for fun you know, because I make enough compost for all my plants. Sure, uh, sure, But there have been products over the years where sometimes I'm just in the mood to actually test them. And, you know, I'll have a control and then I'll have the, the active. And um, I got great results from it. And I won't mention this other product, uh, but I, I was heavily promoted in another soil conditioner and it killed all my starts. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh-huh.
2: Well, this is, this is exactly what I was heading for. Is something that was could be used very dilute. We're, we're talking about something like a one percent solution diluted down from that, like 500 mils of that into 150 gallons of water that can cover an an acre.
0: <laughs> didn't Sherlock Holmes? Didn't Sherlock Holmes use a 7% solution? Yeah,
2: exactly. So, so, well, anyway, I'm going to, part of the skepticism is I'm going to actually do some potential field trials here on the farm, you know, next, this season.
0: Okay, but I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what. Um, I actually went to college on a science scholarship, Mm -hmm. so I love scientific method. What I would suggest is you have three experiments going at the same time. You have the control where you're just maybe going to use ordinary compost, you have the one where you're going to use this super duper uh, solution, and then in the other one you should be able to find the coast of Maine lobster compost. Compare that. Um, I'll do a little foreshadowing. I'm doing the research right now, but in an upcoming show we're going to be introducing Really startling new information about the materials that go into bulk compost. How having um, animal manures and seafood shells, and that really has magical properties. Plus, you're getting the bulk. Yeah, yeah, that, I understand that that what you're saying. Sure, sure. You know, because you keep. You know, this sounds almost like it could have the detrimental effect. Of chemical fertilizers, you're not increasing the amount of topsoil. No matter what kind of good results you get, and right, right. to really be good keepers of the earth, I like to keep building soil, making the soil richer and healthier.
2: Exactly. No, you 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 can't you can't. Uh, there's no free lunch, and there's no shortcuts you know, with some of these things. I think the only, here, here were just the examples of what I was thinking of trying it on. Uh, every you know, over the years, uh, I'd run into these problems like with bean plants. You know, you'd end up with a uh, either Mexican bean beetles or a rust that might show up. Uh, cucumber vines to possibly prevent or forestall the rust development on the leaves. Uh, tomato plants—they have documented the uh, actually limiting fusarium wilts, viral leaf curl. You know, i mean attracting parasitic wasps. And uh, with the pepper plants, specifically root rot, like you mentioned, the nematode damage, and possibly intensifying even some of the flavor compounds in herbs.
0: Okay, well, well, as long as you do this right, you know, and it sounds like you know exactly how to run an experiment like this, um, please do it, keep good records, and then call us back at the end of the season and let us know how it went.
2: I will, because uh, you, you're exactly, exactly right. I re, I remember uh, uh, when I first started gardening way back, I moved from urban north to rural south, and I had a neighbor who had been gardening at that time for 50 years, and actually I was subscribing to the organic gardening back at that time and discussing some of the stuff with him, and I wanted an asparagus bed, and I didn't know anything about it, so I just dug some trenches in the hard, unimproved clay red clay soil planted asparagus seeds six inches deep and covered it over. Mm -hmm. Well, it turned out it was like one of the best uh, asparagus beds and and most productive that lasted for years. And I went over to my neighbor and told him what I did, and he looked me in the eye and he said, anything works once.
0: I I want that T-shirt. Exactly, me too. Well,
2: anyway, I really appreciate the input, and I will I am gonna try some of this stuff and and just uh, see for myself how it how it acts. and Tape, uh, take good know.
0: notes, take good notes and send us a couple of emails and we'll follow this with you. Sounds great, Mike. Thanks so much for your help. I really appreciate it. All right, you take care, sir. Kurt, welcome to you Bet your Garden. Hey, Mike, I'm in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. I listened to you on the podcast and heard you mention
1: that uh, it's not good to put. Uh, wood chips on a flower bed. Was wondering why not to do it on flower bed.
0: Okay, so when you say wood chips, are you mm-hmm. referring to what we call arborist wood chips from tree trimming crews? Yes. Yes. So it's not yes. been dyed. There's no no chipped up pressure treated wood in there. That is the least offensive. Wood. The problems are that if the wood becomes incorporated into the soil, um, mm-hmm. it will steal nitrogen from the soil and okay. the plants will starve to death oh. if it is spread too thickly, which can be a problem when you have a lot of something you want to use it, but right. if you spread it too thickly, rain can no longer get through. And even though you're using a material to retain soil moisture, you can't retain what you never had. So for weed control, one inch to a maximum of two inches, because we have real good studies showing that after Mm -hmm. two inches, um, it sheds rainfall. Oh, okay. Another reason right. is not anything bad about the wood chips, but mm-hmm. landscapers have kind of corrupted this idea with this insistence on volcano mulching, you know, building right. up large mounds of wood chips around the base of trees. Now, mm. it, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to realize this area is going to be a haven for termites. And mm-hmm. other wood eating insects because they can do their dirty work unseen. Same right. for voles, V O L E S, which love yeah. living in these mulches and will eat the fresh bark off the tree right. that you're theoretically protecting. Right. And once they girdle the tree all around, it's only a matter of time before it comes crashing down. Mm-hmm. And the final one is if this is near a home. Or a Mm -hmm. light-colored car, there is always the possibility of it breeding nuisance molds like Mm. shotgun or artillery fungus. This is a really Mm. nasty one because it shoots little tar balls up to 30 feet in the air towards light-colored objects. And so many people with white vinyl siding or nice white cars have found Mm -hmm. out much too late in the game that these spores are living. And if you don't get them off right away, they kind of creep into the material and and become part of it. It can be very expensive. Pennsylvania, for instance, stopped Mm -hmm. um, paying for those kind of problems on Mm -hmm. insurance claims because they were losing so much money. So, you know, if it's not near a home or car, if it's not Mm -hmm. touching the stem or trunk of a plant, and Mm -hmm. you don't mind if maybe some x-rated fungal organisms kind of pop up from it Mm -hmm. uh, overnight, and it's Mm -hmm. not too deep, then it's fine. It's like anything Mm -hmm. else, the dose makes the poison, so using it correctly goes back centuries all right thank you very much well it's time for me to take a little break and announce that it is the season for sowing seeds no not the seeds of tomatoes cucumbers or other fast-growing warm season crops but peppers which take longer to germinate and even longer to get to a big and strong size but don't go hovering over your habaneros to be just yet because we'll be right back with more of your fabulous phone calls I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio and TV at Lehigh Valley Public Media, where? In Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society. Plants and gardens can have an enormous impact on our everyday lives. At PHS, they believe that a seed can be more than a plant, and that gardening can be more than a hobby. PHS is working to plant with purpose and help build healthier communities. Learn more about involvement at phs.org impact. Welcome back to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden. From the studios of Rodale Institute Radio and Television at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA, I am your host, Mike McGrath. It is time to welcome my dear friend and one of the best seed slingers in the business, Renee Shepherd, who is the head honcho of Renee's Garden, which provides some of the highest quality seeds to us gardeners around the country. Welcome back to You Bet Your Garden, Renee.
3: Thanks very much, Mike. It's a pleasure to be there here.
0: There, wherever we are, everywhere we're in, the, we're in the cloud. At least I am half the time. All right, you go back to an era before I was even in this business.
3: You always really emphasize that, Mike. I...
0: <laughs> but and that is simply to state that you have been personally selecting seeds of dynamite varieties for quite a long time. My first memory of coming across your line of seeds, but that you had trialed these things, you had tasted them, and theoretically you couldn't find a better tasting string bean, tomato, bell pepper, whatever.
3: I try to look, they have been for many, many years, as you point out, looking for vegetables. Then we certainly got into wonderful flowers too, but vegetables that are easy to grow, productive, and most importantly, great in the kitchen. So our line of seeds has always been based on things that are really good to eat and cook with. And so we trial everything first in our gardens here in Northern California. We're in the um, hills, so we get a lot of frost, gets down to mid-20s. Um, But then if we like something, we trial it in Vermont to make sure it'll grow in a really cold climate. But the criteria is, does it taste good? Is it better than other varieties? Is it nutritious? And then we cook with it to make sure all that is true uh, on the plate.
0: As part of these trials, you have discovered my absolute favorite tomato. I mean, 35 years in this business, and I never experienced a tomato. I keep screwing up the name Tasmanian
3: Chocolate. That's right. And that was basically read by the uh, Dwarf Tomato Project, which is an organization um, uh, of uh, volunteers. And I think there's two, but my information's vague. So I may not correct <laughs> and I.
0: All, all of my information is vague, Renee.
3: It's an organization, a group of people who really works on container varieties.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's not Snow White Seven Dwarves trying to, you know, make the most of the three inches of sunlight she got at that old place.
3: Right, right. And I got recommended to me by a customer, so we tried it and loved it. And I'm glad you like it as well.
0: The thing that literally blew me away. Because, you know, there's a lot of promises made in catalogs and seed packets. I should mention to our listeners who I, uh, and watchers who I hope are seeing images of your seed packets right now that the uh, illustration, um, all of your seed packets are, are beautiful watercolors or other, uh, you know, types of color art. I mean, they make you want to plant the thing that's inside. And I'm looking and I'm going, right, this bush is gonna be three feet high and it's gonna give me tomatoes the size of a child's head. All right, I gotta see how this works out. They are as big as almost any tomato I've grown and they are the most respectful vines. It's almost like they, they bred the vine out of it. It is an upright plant, unlike myself. It doesn't fall down, and you get such a yield Uh, from a container. I'm
3: really glad you like that one. It is one of my favorites, too, because it's very reliable, uh, really pretty, and delicious. I agree with you.
0: And I should mention also about your seed packets that they contain much more information uh, than the seed packets that you get from most companies. Do they all have that, like, little pull tab where it opens up into a little storybook that gives you more information?
3: Well... As you know, Mike, I used to have a print catalog. Now we are entirely online. And when I went to online, I still wanted to write descriptions of each variety because I've personally grown them and know why I chose them. And I wanted to share that. So our packets have a little extra flap attached to the back. that has an 80 word description for each packet. And then uh, myself and our trial garden manager, Lindsay, we write all the packet backs ourselves based on our growing experience and feedback. Um, and we do change them as things change or as we learn anything different. So I try to make our packets backs the best possible I can in 237 words, which is the limit. But I aim them toward people who do not have a lot of experience gardening and try to provide everything you'll know to be successful.
0: Which brings me to the thought that this previous year, many new gardeners jumped into the game and almost everyone else I've spoken to says their seed and plant business went through the roof. Did your company, Renee's Garden, experience the same um, rise in sales?
3: Uh, Everybody in the seed business and everybody in the plant business experienced a huge surge very quickly. And it wasn't like there was a seed shortage, it was just that seed companies like mine and all of us project how many packets we need to fill every year. And last year we had filled to the number of packets we expected with, you know, some extra for hope for growth. And then with the surge, we all used up all the packets we had. So all of us are prepared with more filled packets this year, but I think it's going to be a very good idea to buy seeds early because we're starting to experience a lot of pressure on our inventory early. And there isn't like there's a worldwide seed shortage. There's just a worldwide demand. And the logistics for where seeds are produced, which is all over the world, is difficult because it's hard to bring enough in.
0: You know, and that's something regular humans don't think about. When we see on your website this sold out for the year, they figure you ran out of seeds when there's just as likely a chance that you don't have the packets or uh, the man or woman power uh, to get it all together and send it out to everybody.
3: Well, also, everyone in the seed business has strict coronavirus protocols. So that's another thing that kind of can slow down order and then the postal system and the delivery agents are all kind of backed up with online orders. So it was like a perfect storm. You know, I'm in business to spread the joy and pleasures of gardening, and I want to do the best I can. So it's my job to make sure people are successful growing from seed, which I think is the most satisfying way of having a garden.
0: Yeah, isn't it weird to be in this business for 30, 40 years and suddenly become an overnight success?
3: Uh, it, it is a strange and wonderful <laughs> experience, but it's a silver lining to a very black situation. What kind
0: of bird is in the background?
3: Oh, that's Wazoo, my cockatiel.
0: Okay, so uh, one thing I did tell you uh, when I asked you to be on the show today, is I've been getting these mailings that this is the year of the sunflower, You know, every year some anonymous uh, group, uh, you know, Illuminati or somebody, pick a a flower of the year. And this year it's sunflowers, which are one of my absolute favorite uh, plants to grow. Before we get into them, I want to mention, because I'm supposed to be the educator here, that there are basically two kinds of sunflowers. There are what are called the oil sunflowers, maybe the Russian mammoth sunflowers. And these are the ones that are six to eight feet tall with the giant heads that always face towards the sun and uh, produce edible seeds for humans and especially birds. There's no better way to feed the birds than to grow these gigantic sunflowers. But my favorites are the little guys, so to speak ornamental sunflowers that range in height from, I believe, just a minuscule six inches to maybe even five, six feet in height. And the diversity is just astounding. Talk to us about um, the ornamental varieties.
3: Well, you're right. I mean, oil sunflowers are a huge crop for their oil all over the world, and they're grown in tons and tons and tons and tons. Ornamental sunflowers are also, it's a minuscule percentage of the sunflowers grown uh, throughout the world but they're important because they're wonderful uh, ornamental flowers and they attract lots of pollinators and they come in as you say many different heights ranching ones there's also some tall hybrids um, of the single large single flower um, that you were talking about similar to uh, mammoth but maybe even taller with huge flowers. So there's a wide range of forms and types. So you can grow them in pots. You can grow maybe miniature ones in containers that are three feet tall. You can go a hedge that's five feet tall. You can have single flowers or branching flowers. And sunflowers come in every, um, every shade of red and orange and brown and burgundy. And there's a lot of bicolors ones that might have yellow rays and then a circle of a red or vice versa, red outer rays, and then a circle of yellow, and some have green centers to start, and then they turn brown. I mean, it's just a very diverse and very old family. You know, sunflowers originate from South America back centuries and centuries ago.
0: And it's my understanding, well, it's more than my understanding, because when my magazine, Organic Gardening, was in the Philadelphia Flower Show, We actually investigated a lot of Native American crops to incorporate into our display. And the early sunflowers, so to speak, were all what you call branching varieties, not just a stem and a big head, but so many stems, all up, uh, so many stems, so many heads, flower heads, whatever, all up and down the stem.
3: Well, that's true. And if you want to grow bird seeds to feed songbirds during the winter, those branching ones produce small seeds that birds just love. So you don't have to grow big mammoths uh, if you want to feed the birds or uh, save the head, seed heads to use in the winter for feeding uh, birds. And also, let's not forget that sunflowers provide, uh, the ones that aren't hybrids, provide lots of uh, pollen for uh for uh, pollinators like bees and native bees and so on, but even the hybrid ones produce nectar. So they're a really great habitat flower. Like I said, they come in all heights and in most of the country you can plant more, except in the coldest areas, you can plant them twice, you know, beginning of the season and then midsummer for a fall crop in most in, I would say down to zone six
0: anything like this in my garden, I always leave it standing, so to speak, over the fall and winter. And I get rewarded with the most amazing antics of goldfinches who land on the top of these little sunflowers and eat the tiny seeds while they're upside down the entire time.
3: Well, I agree with you. They really attract lots of songbirds and they're easy to grow. With sunflowers, if, if you start them indoors, they grow quickly and you don't want to crowd your growing pots with too many seedlings. So I would plan if you do start them indoors, maybe five or six weeks before the soil gets warm enough to work and the, uh, and the outdoor nighttime temperatures are going to be in the 50s, that's when you can plant them either directly from seed, sown outdoors or starts that you've started They do grow quickly if you just wait till the nights are in the fifties in the spring. You don't really need to start them indoors, but you can if you want to get a head start. If you plant them indoors, maybe put two seeds in each cell and then when they sprout, thin them back to the strongest seed.
0: I want to drop back also to one thing you said that is so important, and we should be saying it in every show this time of year, peppers, tomatoes, cucumbers, sunflowers any of these crops that we consider warm weather crops, you don't plant by the date. Wait till the 10 day, wait till you get to a reasonable date and then look at the 10 day forecast. And if you see a low 40 in there, sit on your hands because you're gonna get better results if you wait than if you rush the season.
3: Well, I think that's becoming more and more true. You know, 40, 50 years ago, states were more reliable, that's changing. So peppers, eggplants, and tomatoes are the seeds everyone all over the country starts indoors. Sunflowers, if you, if you wait till the nights are in the 55 degree range, you can plant them directly or you can start them in advance. So thinning is one of the hardest things to do, but it's a good argument for having a compost pile because if you have to thin out extra seedlings, at least you can use them to nourish future ones. And two, you leave them all tangled together, plant them too closely. They won't thrive. They'll be more susceptible to pests. In other words, you're torturing them. It's the most evident with sunflowers about thinning because when you do plant them out or when you sow seeds, you sow them about six inches apart and then you thin back to stand a foot apart. And you say, that seems very strange when they're about three, four inches tall. Because sunflowers to get strong, thick stalks and big root systems need to have space to stretch out and um, you know grow. So that's the important thing about the most vigorous, healthy sunflowers is to thin them out so they stand 10 or 12 inches apart, which seems very counterproductive, but really works.
0: It is one of the hardest things that I tried to get across to people. I've actually seen good research that shows when you have Siamese twin tomatoes in one of your six packs or something like that, that when the roots intertwine, they pick up this signal that there's plenty of tomatoes in the area, and so they don't have to produce as much, whereby if the roots are not encountering any other tomatoes, it's we're all alone out here. We better reproduce and reproduce well
3: with sunflowers a lot of them will come up and if you don't thin them out they're going to compete with each other they will be more susceptible to everything that comes along and you'll never get the same results with many plants you can dig up the extra seedlings and sunflowers if you start them in the soil when they're a couple inches tall you certainly can dig up the extra ones and give them plant them up and give them away or plant them elsewhere or else you can simply compost them. But it's really important to have proper spacing, and great air circulation for the best sunflowers.
0: One thing we should mention is this kind of staggered planting situation. Much like spring bulbs, it's not that difficult, even for a beginning gardener who waits till the soil is warm enough and the nights are warm enough, to put a front row of six-inch tall sunflowers, then a foot behind it, one footers and then behind that two footers and without essentially having any skill whatsoever. You don't even need opposable thumbs for this. You create this beautiful garden bed that's going to make everybody smile who sees it. So uh, a couple of sunflower favorites. Again, this is theoretically the year of the sunflower. What are some of the varieties you couldn't live without?
3: Well, I really like red sunflowers, and we have mm-hmm. one called um, Cinnamon Sun that I really like a lot. That it's a dark burgundy red. Um, we have one called Garnet Star, which is oh. grows about four four to five feet tall, and the flowers have kind of circles of burgundy, kind of brick and yellow. That is branching and really pretty. And then we have one called the Birds and the Bees, which is an oil sunflower that's It's also very ornamental and branching, and um, it really, really appeals to those goldfinches. Uh, And then on short ones, I I do like the short potted ones, but I tend to, I have one, um, I guess I just have so many, it's hard for me to say I have favorites, but those are some of the ones I always plant.
0: Well, and that's what's important. Um, When you love it, you plant it, and you make sure you can get it again the next year. I think sometimes the heart of gardening is the search for that perfect sunflower, that perfect tomato, that flower or vegetable or fruit that you never knew about, but now you can't live without. <laughs> All right. It has been a pleasure chatting with you, Renee Shepard of Renee's Garden. They're on the web at reneesgarden.com. Great seeds, beautiful packets, very high quality. And although she doesn't like to hear me say it, one of the pioneers of the real quality end of, of the seed business.
3: It's like it's always a pleasure to talk to you. I mean that. And I am a perennially big fan of yours. So thanks.
0: Well, thank you so much, Renee. Thank you for being with us. And we'll get you back on real soon.
1: Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com.
0: Welcome back to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodeo Institute Radio at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. I am your host, Mike McGrath, and we are in the stretch now, cats and kittens. In just a couple of minutes, we'll give you very specific instructions on how to get your best crop ever of spring peas. We'll also touch on the planting of beans, which, although their first cousins, could not be more different in some ways. Well, before that, more of your fabulous phone calls at 833-727-9588. Mark, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Thank you. Well, thank you, Mark. How are you doing? I'm, I'm excellent. How are you? I am just ducky. Thanks for asking. you found it. Yeah. And so uh, where where is your home? Where do you garden? Uh, Nazareth, Pennsylvania. Oh, okay. Home of uh, uh, Martin Guitar. Uh, Martin
1: Guitar. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. uh, Famous place. I was actually uh, privileged to write a big feature story about them for the Philadelphia Inquirer back in the early 70s. Yeah. Yeah. When they were already like 200 years old. Right. Been around for a while. Yeah. You know? All right. What can we do for Mark from Nazareth?
1: So we have a, a strawberry patch that's about three years old now.
0: Mm-hmm. And the whole patch is full of
1: a black dot fungus. Huh.
0: Are... It's about
1: 25 plants. 25 plants. Right. So, what are we? Eight, 8 by 12, something like that.
0: Okay. Uh, is there mulch on the bed?
1: Um, what I actually did is between the. Rows of plant. I put down uh, um, a couple of years ago. I had some extra straw, so I put some straw just for the you know walk between the plants and whatnot.
0: And well, I did put you know, a little bit of. Uh, go
1: ahead.
0: there are many people who feel that's where the name comes from uh, because straw is the first choice for helping prevent weeds, but also helping uh-huh. keep the plants above the ground. Um, right. where the chances of disease are and rot are are uh, much uh, less. So go ahead. Years ago you used some straw. What about after that?
1: Straw, yeah. And then, well, it's it's a relatively new patch. And then after that, we we did put some um, compost, there was manure compost down to try to feed the plants, but it just we didn't have much luck with the the black dot. I tried to, you know, prune the plants and
0: I did use some
1: kind of a non um, a fungus killer that was uh, just didn't I didn't have much luck, it just spread more.
0: Okay. So you used quote manure compost. Where did this come from? Right. Um horses. Okay. And so it's composted manure. Did Correct. you did you get it from a stable? Did you buy it in a bag?
1: No, stable. From from a a pile of you know composting manure at, at a, a, a friend's house.
0: Okay, and were the dots there before or after? Before. Okay, so the manure was not the cause? No, no. What else could have been added to the bed besides the straw years ago?
1: Really, the, the bed, again, the bed before I, I opened it up was grass. Okay. So there was really nothing else there besides um, in in relatively close proximity, I mean uh, maybe fifteen feet or something there's a a row of pine trees that's about it
0: yeah yeah none of that adds up so no, no. Uh, it every plant is somewhat infected
1: basically it it spread throughout the patch yeah
0: okay and composted horse manure is the only natural fertilizer you have access to yes,
1: yeah I use anything
0: else okay well you got to stop using it first of all uh composted horse manure is rich in nitrogen which is not what flowering plants want Uh, the the horse manure at the very least is inhibiting the number of flowers and strawberries Mm, okay so this is on every leaf
1: yeah yeah Yeah, more or less yes
0: okay my father, the homicide detective, used to love answers like that, you know. Oh, more or less, huh? Uh, okay. Without actually sitting in the patch right now and counting, I'd say yes. Okay. And the patch is what size again? Uh, it's
1: like 12 by 8. I twenty-five. I know it's 25
0: plants. Okay. Okay. So what I'm going to suggest, and you're not going to like to hear this, mm-hmm. um, but I would pluck off every bad leaf. Okay. Um you know in Nazareth those leaves aren't doing your plants any good right now. Yeah no, absolutely not and right. the, the bed should start producing new leaves. You you might also want to start propagating daughters um okay. off right, right, of the right. bed. Uh the, uh-huh. they will be naturally healthier because they won't be as old. And then right, right. you have to find some real compost, yard waste compost, no manure. Okay. Um, I, I don't know if Nazareth Township makes it or what you can do. If, right, it, if right, it's right. not too much of an investment, if you can find high-quality compost at a garden center, in bags. And then I want, want you to put down an inch of compost uh, okay. you know, in the lanes around each plant and don't don't worry about taking all the leaves off they'll come back and then save some compost and if you see any discoloration in the new leaves which which i honestly doubt will happen take an old sock a gym sock or something like that fill it with the compost sit that sock in a 5 gallon bucket of water for 24 hours and then spray the compost tea on your plants oh, okay OK, got to do it right away because the living organisms in there that are going to fight disease for you, they're going to start running out of oxygen after about 20, 22 hours.
1: And the, the beds, too, the bed should be
0: clean? The bed Both should be, leaves. well, you want to pull off the bed leaves, lay down okay. an inch of real compost, save some of the compost to make compost tea. Even if the disease doesn't come back, that's a great way to feed your plants uh, a balanced meal. No more manure. Sounds good. There's enough of that on this show already. Yes, it is time for the question of the week, which we're calling Peas and Beans. To start or not to start. That is the question. The person who asked the question is Janine, who writes, We live in Washington State. When would be the best time to start planting snap peas and green bean seeds indoors to transplant outside later? And what is the best method to start those seeds? Well, to quote the all-knowing Internet, Washington growing zones are wide-ranging and can be anywhere from 4A to 9A, although much of the state falls into the range of 6A on the eastern half of the state, to 9A on the western side. Now, Zone 6A is pretty common across the country. My garden in Pennsylvania is either a 6A or a 6B. Now, Bs are a little warmer than As, but they're not quite the next zone up. Higher zone numbers indicate warmer wintertime lows, while low numbers mean it gets darn cold in the winter. Darn cold, especially in four. Luckily, I don't need to know Janine's exact location, as the point with these crops is, as they say, moot. I don't know why they say it, they just do, okay? Peas and beans are direct sown, meaning that you plant the seeds right in the ground as opposed to starting them inside, like tomatoes and peppers. They are also both legumes which means that if they come into contact with the right types of soil bacteria, they gain the ability to feed themselves with nitrogen from the air, which is wicked cool, wicked. You can buy the correct bacteria, which is called an inoculant, at your friendly neighborhood garden center. But those two things are all that they have in common, because peas are a cool weather springtime crop, and beans are a warm weather crop of the summer like them tomatoes and peppers we just mentioned. Now, all types of peas, whether they're snap peas, snow peas, or English shelling peas, will wither and die right around the same time life gets good for green beans, which makes timing of the peas extremely important. Virtually all varieties of peas have a days to maturity rating of between 50 to 70 days which in most regions means giving them all of April and May to grow, with you getting all of June to pick and enjoy. Here in the East, many gardeners believe that planting your peas on St. Patrick's Day is good luck, which it is not if there's still snow and or frozen soil in your garden. Ah, but the timing does make sense, as St. Patrick's Day falls on March 17th this year, And if you plant in soil that is not frozen, that planting date could have... And if you plant in soil that is not frozen, that planting date could have you picking peas in late May. Uh, But you only get one shot at this crop each year. And so we will explain how you can cheat your way into pea heaven. And as we always like to remind our younger listeners, Remember, kids, cheaters always win. Here's the deal. Select the bed in which you will plant your pea seeds and remove any mulch covering the soil to allow that soil to warm up faster. It would also not be wrong to cover that bed with a one or two mil thick sheet of clear plastic to further the path to warm soil. Then we will not start our seeds, the tomato and pepper way, but we will pre-sprout them. About a week after you start warming that soil, take your pea seeds, which are big and easy to handle, and put them into Ziploc bags with enough moist paper towels to cover all the seeds. Now, do not zip the bags shut. Just fold them over and place them out in the open in a warm room. Check the seeds daily. If there's no sign of moisture in the bag, add a little water, or even better, use a mister or a miz. After five to seven days, you should see little squiggles coming out of some of the seeds. Now leave the bag open to prevent mold, but keep misting gently. Then, when the planets are all aligned, most of your seeds have nice-sized squiggles, and the soil outside is workable, as in no longer frozen, plant your pre sprouted seeds. If you have that inoculant we talked about at hand, dust it into the planting holes or rows right along with the seeds. Although the seeds would probably have rotted in the cold, wet soil of spring, the sprouted seeds and the plants to come don't mind cool weather. In fact, they require it. Yep. But you're not done yet. Some varieties will have the word bush associated with their name. That means that these vines will top out at around 2 feet tall and require minimal support. If they doesn't say bush, they will need to be trellised or they will collapse into an ungodly mess. Check the packet, seed catalog or website for their final height and respect it. Then you wait. When the first peas appear, pick them early. The smallest pods taste the best, and not allowing the seeds to get too big inside the pods means the plants will keep producing prodigiously. When the vines start to shrivel and die, pick what's left and clear that bed for a new crop, like green beans, which need no pre-sprouting because the soil is now nice and warm. They will also, say, bush or pole. Again, respect their final height. And those string beans, green beans, and other kind of beans, they're going to persist until frost, as should you. was some interesting information about having lots of peas in your pot, now, wasn't it? Luckily for you, the Question of the Week appears in print at the Gardens Alive website. To read it over at your leisure or your leisure, just click the link for the Question of the Week at our website, which is still and will forever be YouBetYourGarden.org. Gardens Alive supports the You Bet Your Garden Question of the Week, and you will always find the latest Question of the Week at the Gardens Alive website. Yikes, my producer's threatening to sabotage my snow peas if I don't get out of this studio. We must be out of time. But you can call us anytime at 833-727-9588 or send us your email. You're tired, you're poor, you're wretched refuse teeming towards our garden shore at ybyg at wlvt.org. Please include your location. Don't say you're in the kitchen or something like that. You'll find all of this contact information at our website, youbetyourgarden.org, where you'll also find the answers to hundreds of your garden questions, audio of this show, video of this show, audio and video of all shows, aye, and our priceless podcast. You Bet Your Garden is a half-hour public television show, an hour-long public radio show and podcast, all produced and delivered to you weekly by Rodale Institute Radio and Television in association with Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Our radio show is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange. You Bet Your Garden was created by Mike McGrath. Mike McGrath was created by William Cameron Menzies during the filming of Invaders from Mars. Mike played the nightmare-inducing picket fence. A true American nightmare, Ken Queter plays our theme song. Our chief content officer is Joni Greenbaum. Our angel of the airways is Christine Dempsey. Our engineer is Jersey Charlie Syrup. Our social media director is Amanda Norfleet, check out her fine work and stay current with what's happening with the show at the You Bet Your Garden Facebook page. Tavia Minnick is our priceless producer of profound production. The always lovely Jonas Bowen is our audio editor. Jake Boyer does the video. Our directorial director of direction is the harassed and harried Javier Diaz. Andy Cummins takes our temperature at the door. The monster from Planet Zero, Zach the Tack is in the house. He is assisted by the usual gang of idiots, otherwise known as Bethlehem's answer to the Bowery Boys, including Jeff Frederick, Eric Warner, Jacob Morris, and many more too expensive to mention. And what else can I say about our beloved Grand Poobah, CEO, merciful dictator, and once again, The person named in a national poll most likely to be late for any meeting, Tim Fallon, who is not our executive producer. I'm your host, Mike McGrath, and they haven't fired me yet, although God knows I've tried. So I guess I and Ducky will see you all again next week. galvanized steel full of zinc? How many kinds of burrowing mammals do gardeners in Kansas have to contend with? Or could the question of the week be the promised treatise on keeping your baby plants alive after they sprout? I'm Mike McGrath, and on the next You Bet Your Garden, we'll discuss one of those tantalizing topics, plus your fabulous phone calls.